Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Today we celebrate the life of a great Australian. She's made a name in the sport of horse racing, which can be a very cutthroat sport, but she is recognisable. She's one of these rare people. If you say just her Christian name, you know who I'm talking about. If we just said, I've got Gay with me today, everybody would know. It's Gay Waterhouse. Gay, it's lovely to have you on the program. Yes, it's nice to be on the program, and thank you for asking me, Peter. Oh, well, it's uh, it's been a wish of mine for a long time that we should be able to sit down because we haven't done it for far too long and have a bit of a chat about your great influence on Australian racing. We record this early in the morning. Well, probably not that early for you because uh, you've been up for, what, about six hours now? It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yes, we've been up since quarter past two, and we've just finished the training session, which was, you know, a longish slog there at Randwick. Very good. And I was down at Flemington yesterday where we've got about a dozen horses uh, and I was training them there. So it keeps me busy. So when the alarm goes off at quarter past two, Gay, have you got used to it over the years or are there sometimes where you think just like we normal human beings, oh no, five more minutes would be great? <laughs> no, no, I've got used to it, Peter. If I went five more minutes, I wouldn't get up. So <laughs> I just, you know, get up and, and get on with the job. And it's a lot harder, of course, if you've had a night out. But if you, you know, go to bed at a sensible hour or you do things regularly, it's not that difficult. So what time is a sensible hour? What time do you have to get to bed the night before? Oh, about quarter to nine. I find if any time after that, I just get too tired. But up until then, I seem to be fine. You know, it's nice to have a little bit of downtime in the evenings when we come home. I, I don't take any telephone calls unless it was absolutely something essential. But, you know, once I get home with the kids and, you know, Rob, I sort of concentrate on them and have my unwind time and my downtime. And um, does Rob get up with you or does he just say, right, I okay, go, see you later, we'll see you later in the day? <laughs> Now, uh, beginning of the week, he, he rests in and then goes for a run. But as the week, you know, like from uh, Wednesday, he's up to do his form. And Friday, Saturday, he's up early doing his form. So he'd be up by about three. You know, he'll be sitting doing his form and I'll get him something to eat. And, you know, I'll be talking to the foreman while, while he's there working away. And so do you manage to get a nap at all during the day, Gay, or does that would that disrupt your routine? 
Oh no, no, certainly does not disrupt my routine. And I <laughs> swing on my, I swing on my morning nap like nothing on earth. I, <laughs> I couldn't do my hours unless I had my little break in the in the morning. And I find by about eight thirty or nine, if I have a break, I, it refreshes me, and I'm ready to go on to the next stint. You probably you're the sort of person who we don't think needs refreshing because everything I've had to do with you over the years, your energy and enthusiasm is like very few people that I've ever encountered before. Oh, Peter, well, I'm very much, I always say to people, I'm very much like the ever-ready battery. You know, I go along great, great guns and then all of a sudden fall in a heap. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I do, definitely need my, my uh, recharging. I definitely need my batteries recharged. And I find that in the morning and then quite often in the afternoon I'll go home and I'll lie on the bed and speak to owners or do some programming. But, you know, just lying there quietly and I find just putting my feet up and thinking about things seems to help as well, you know. You're always on, though. You're, your mind is always ticking over, apart from that little nap that you have in the afternoon and the few hours sleep that you get at night. What What do you like to do for yourself? When you get the rare opportunity, what do you like to do for gay? Well, I've always been very much a family person. You know, being with my parents or with Rob and, and, and the kids and mum and dad and his parents. And, you know, and, and we've got a couple of very close mates uh, that we have dinner with on a Saturday night or might travel with them. You know, uh, so I'm very much, you know, we do things with our family lots and I really enjoy that. Now that I'm lucky enough to have grandchildren, I really enjoy them hugely. I, I didn't realise that when, you know, I found out I was going to be a grandmother. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that sounds so old. But <laughs> it's just great fun. It really is. It's very pleasurable. I had no idea how much I'd enjoy it. I just try to be around with them, you know, and try to do things with them. And I take them riding, or, you know, not all at once, because there's four of them now. So I just try to get myself involved with them and try to get them also involved in my life so they can learn to appreciate the horses and, and what's been, you know, made my father and Rob and his father so successful. You see things in horses that we don't see, even those of us who've been looking at horses for a long time. What, what is the thing that you most look for in a horse? Say if you're looking at a yearling or a young horse, what's the thing that you look for that you can determine that we can't see? I look for the horse to be athletic. I look for him to be well balanced. I look for him to have an intelligence in his eye that when he looks at you, he's not a complete dumb bum. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I look for some mannerisms that I find a little bit maybe quirky, but not quirky that they're going to be difficult to train, but quirky that they might show the horse has a lovely personality and might give that to you as he gets trained and, you know, up and running. Um, you know, I, I, I try to see inside them. It doesn't always work, but it works lots of times. Do you always have that guy, or was that something that TJ taught you? No, that that was able to, uh, you know, pick out in, in the horse and say to me, he had a fantastic eye for a horse and a very remarkably good memory. Uh, but he used to say to me about certain things about horses and I was around him a lot and always asking him questions. And when I went to the first sales, um, I came back with four horses from Adelaide and Dad looked at them and said, well, he said, lucky a man's got money. He said, because you don't want to be buying those sort of horses anymore. And I said, what do you mean, Dad? I thought they were great. He said, well, they won't win any races for you, Gay. And they didn't. Um, and I said, well, what do I look for? And he said, you look for the champion. I said, but how do I find the champion? How do I know the champion? He said, you have to watch and you have to, you have to follow me and you have to watch very carefully. And so I did that. I did exactly that. 
TJ was, of course, a hard taskmaster, and that was probably the best way that it should be. Did he not tell you at one stage, Gay, about two-year-olds? He said you couldn't train two-year-olds? Well, he said to me just before he died, he said, you make a man sick. He said, you can't train the two-year-olds. <laughs> I said, oh, well, you just break them down. He said, that's why I've won that six golden slippers. <laughs> and I, um, I said, oh, you know, as young people, though, I puffed and puffed and went on stupidly. He said, you've got to keep it short and sharp. He said, you're doing too much with them. Mm. Uh, and he was right. You know, he was completely right. And it wasn't until he passed away in September, now about 15 years ago, I thought, I've got to change. I've got to, you know, change the way I train them if I'm going to be successful. And he was also critical in uh, other ways of a profession that you very well could have taken up rather than being a horse trainer because you were an actress um, and quite successfully at various times. But TJ wasn't all that thrilled with the acting profession, was he? Yeah, he thought it was a stupid profession. He first of all told me when I got into NIDA, he said, well, that's full of puffs, you're not doing that. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, he said, I don't know why you keep doing it. He said, you've got a good family business, why don't you come and join us? And I said, no, I want to do this, I want to be an actress. And he went and saw me in a play called Crown Matrimonial. And uh, we came off and he said to my mother, he said, well, uh, you blink, you'd miss, madam. That's what he used to call because <laughs> I only had what uh, we called a, you know, a bit part. <laughs> you know, he was very direct, Dad, but it was good that he was direct because at the end of the day, I, I saw the light and, and I'd just come out of work with the BBC in London and I hadn't anything on that Christmas and I thought, you know, I think I'll go home. Something inside me said it's time to go and I packed up and came home. So who are the famous actors that we would know their names that you work with in, in your time in acting, Guy? Well, uh, June Salter in Australia and uh, John Hamblin. Um, and, uh, and then in, in England I worked with uh, tr in Canada with Trevor Howard, mm -hmm. who was one of the great, great uh, serious actors. Yeah, it was a long time ago now. And a wonderful comic actor called Patrick Cargill. Yes. Uh, father, no, dear father, father, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, it was Peter. And he was—he he taught me probably the most of all of them. He was very strict. He was very tough. Um, and I'd worked very hard to lose my Australian accent so I could get a job over there. And I got the part, and he found out that I was an Australian only because we were talking one day in the lunch break. And he said, oh, you've got an unusual inflection. And I said, what do you mean, Patrick? He said, oh, your voice goes up at the end of the sentence. Mm. I've only ever heard that in Australia. And I said, well, I am Australian. Oh, he was very cross. He was really, really annoyed. <laughs> he employed someone that he thought was English. So was there one particular moment where you decided, OK, I've given acting my best shot, but I think probably I'm going to finish up with horses? Well, um... I knew at that Christmas, uh, when I knew that England wasn't the place for me to stay, and I, I didn't say to anyone, any of my friends there, I just said, oh, I'm going to go home for a couple of weeks, but I knew in my heart I wouldn't go back unless it was on a holiday. And then I came back and I couldn't get a job. I came back to Australia and they said, oh, you're a pommy. I said, no, I'm an Australian. They said, no, you're a pommy, you sound like one. We can't get... So I couldn't get a job. And um, I started working with Dad clocking the horses. And the more I worked with him, even though I'd done it before, not clocking them, but being with him, uh, the more I couldn't get enough of it. And, the, uh, you know, and I just 
it was just sensational. I, I couldn't get enough of getting around the horse. I couldn't get enough of clocking them. I, I just thought, my God, I'm like a pig in mud. I all of a sudden fall on my feet and something that was there all the time. And that's when I sort of, I was able to marry the two for a while because I had a racing show called Track Time. Mm. And I wrote for, the, wrote for the Telegraph and then the Herald. Um, so, you know, I was able to marry both. But uh, then I, I had to make a decision and I made it that it was, was racing. Well, I think you actually did uh, a couple of... Did you do a couple of Melbourne Cups for Network 10 before I actually got there? I did my first one in 89, and I think you may have done a couple before then. Yes, I did. I did. Well, I worked for the Seven Network, and then I moved over networks, and I used to do the interviews and just loved doing it, absolutely loved it, Peter. It was a perfect marriage for me of being able to work with the the television and, and to be around the horses. So when you did the interviews, Gay, when you were doing the racing telecast, did you have anyone that you had to chase around the mounting yard like I had? Uh, someone whom, oh, well, I may actually be talking to at the moment. Did you, did you find <laughs> that you had to chase someone around? Well, the hardest person I had was a man called Jack Denham, who was uh, yeah. famous for being completely evasive and uh, elusive to the press. And he was exceedingly hard to get an interview from because he had a very good horse. Which I think other than Michael Cowan was another very good horse. And he was impossible to, to try to get an interview from. But Peter, it's great fun, isn't it? It's, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you hear things often before other people do, so you have an insight into what they think the trainers and the jockeys. And you also get to meet so many different people, uh, not only from a, a television point of view, but from a racing point of view. The egalitarian nature of racing is something that has often been spoken about, Gay, because you'll get to meet high court justices or prime ministers, but you'll also get to meet the local garbologist who's got a share in a horse too. You get to meet every single scale of people in racing, and that's one of the wonderful things about it. It is, Peter. I like the word garbologist. That's a very good one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, you do. And, and there's a wonderful expression that, that says, all are equal above and below the turf. And that's very true. Mm. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great profession. And it's a wonderful, you know, it, it's a great level. You might have paid the, for the best horse in Australia, but yet it can't canter. Or you might... Um, think you've got the best horse and all of a sudden it gets into a race and there's something better. So it brings you down to earth in a very good way. Yeah, I always remember when you talk about um, highly uh, rated horses or, or horses with a high price tag that can't canter, I remember, and you probably would, Robert Holmes of Court bought a horse called Paint the Stars many years ago. And I think he yes, paid... I, I remember it vividly. Yeah, 825000 and uh, they start, uh, first started at Flemington. I think the jockey got three weeks for interfering with the ambulance. Couldn't get out of its own way. <laughs> yes, but if that happens, but then you get others that are just as brilliant. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's all relevant, isn't it? I mean, we've got a very high-priced horse that's very exciting called Cigel Quebec. that ran as a brilliant race the other day, uh, probably over not the most appropriate of trips. Uh, so, you know... You, it just depends. It just depends on the individual. Well, I think I'm right in saying that a little black horse called Kingston Town didn't cost much when he was a youngster. I think it cost about 28000 mm. And Dad went to the sales in Melbourne, and um, David Haynes had two very beautiful horses. He had one called Kingston Town that became Kingston Town, and one called Lowen Star. And uh, boats were passed in. And uh, one went to uh, one dad that trained, and then Lowen Star came to dad after being in, in Melbourne with Angus Armanesco, came up to dad 
both were outstanding horses. Of course, Kingston Town was a freak, really. Yeah, and the other horse that was around about that time was the dominant horse um, over the shorter distances, Manicato. I think he cost about $3,500. So you can find uh, a gem in the field, can't you, even though it mightn't you have a big can. price tag. Yeah. Gabe, we'll take a break. When we come back on the other side of the break, we'll talk about your great training career and how it started because it didn't start easily for you. There are a lot of barriers that you had to overcome before you made your mark on Australian racing. Gay Waterhouse is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And I'm absolutely delighted to have Gay Waterhouse as my guest on the program. Gay, you had a lot of hurdles placed in front of you before you actually started this brilliant training career. Yes, I certainly did. The ATC um, told me that I could apply for a licence, which I did, and then they knocked me back. And uh, I uh, went to the uh, anti-discrimination court thinking I had a very valid case, only to find that I lost it. Uh, Then went on appeal, and, and I won on appeal. And then um, you know, went on like this for about two and a half years until eventually the AJC at the time, the Australian Jockey Club, called me in and they said, we're going to give you your licence. And I said, you've got to be joking. I said, you've been fighting me for two and a half years. They said, well, here's your licence now. And uh, I took out my trainer's licence and went after the sales after and thought, well, I better have some horses to train. But of course, then I stupidly bought at the time, I thought I did anyway, stupidly bought a filly for quite a bit of money at the time, 80000 And Harry Lawton, the then big time syndicator, mm. came up and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll sell that horse for you, I'll syndicate it. And you know, that's how we started our great association. And it, it, was, it was very good. And so just going back to the difficulties that you had with the licence, it was because of your relationship with Robbie that they were saying that you couldn't have a trainer's licence because of everything. My husband was warned off. Yes. And they they treated it as that because I was married to a warned off person. But as it came quite apparent in the the court, of course, uh, you shouldn't be judged on your spouse's, Mm. uh, you know, whatever he may or may not have done or she or she may not have done. And, of course, they then went on to make it uh, an act in Parliament, which is called the Waterhouse Act, which protects the right, you know, for women to work in the workforce. Did you also think at the time, Gay, that there was an element of sexism in this? Did you think that they they were reluctant in any way because you were a woman and because racing still to this day in lots of ways is um, is very much a male-dominated sport and there are a lot of people who think the way that people used to think 100 years ago? Well, it wouldn't happen if I was... Um, uh, if it was Rob taking up the licence mm. and I had been warned off, nothing would have happened. You know, yeah. She's a little wife at home cooking the dinner. But because I, he was the man and, and I was taking up the licence, it was... You know, I, Betty Lane said to me, that the, the, the trainer, uh, Randwick trainer, who was the only lady at, uh, training at Randwick at the time, she said, Gay, they didn't give me a licence for years. They made me go out to Tamworth or Mudger or wherever it was and train out there. Yet if she'd been a man, they would have given her the licence straight away. But I, I didn't worry about that. I just knew that I had a very strong case and I knew that I was in the right and I was just going to fight it. So you get the licence, all of a sudden, Gifted Poet, on March the 15th, 1992, begins it. That's your first winner. 
your first runner in a race, you get a winner. And then the winner started to flow. A, a couple of horses in particular, it's, it's going to be impossible to name all of the horses that you've had great success with. But Tiako Nick, I'm sure he holds a great place in your heart. He certainly does. And it wasn't, it was all because of Dad and a man called David Ellis. David Ellis had Tiako Nick and he rang my father up and he said, Tommy, we'd like you to train him. And um, Dad said, no, no, he said, David, I won't train him. He said, Gail trained that horse. He said, Gail's a far better trainer than I am. Well, of course, I hadn't trained anything. And David said, hey, I'm Tommy, so you're the champion trainer. He said, no, I'm telling you, she's the champion trainer. And it was fantastic. And David gave me the horse to train. And, of course, it won the Metropolitan. It then went on and won, uh, you know, ran second in the Melbourne Cup. You know, we just had the most fantastic, fantastic ride with the horse. He was just amazing. Then that Melbourne Cup, he, he gave you a real thrill because he, he kind of looked the winner at the top of the straight as well. Um, did you think at the time, well, I wonder if I'm ever going to get to win one of these one day? Well, it was a long time ago and it was my first attempt yeah. and I thought, how easy is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not realising that it would take me 20 years to win the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. But no, it was great. It was, it was a fabulous feeling and uh, David was so funny because he ran in the McKinnon, the... Um, he ran in the Hotham the day, two days before, mm. and he ran, he ran about sixth. And David said, oh, I said, spell that horse. And I said, no, no, no. I said, don't spell him. I said, you walk down the pre-parade ring with me, and if he's blowing, you can, we'll pull him in the paddock. But I said, he won't be blowing, and he wasn't. And so David said, who am I to tell you what to do with the horse? You want me to Metropolitan, get on, except with the cup. And in those days, you had to run up and pay up your check, didn't you? You know, at the, at the, at the, at the scales there. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, Gay, I well remember talking to you after that, uh, that wonderful three-year-old, nothing like a Dane, won the Victoria Derby. And I love the line that you gave me after the race because nothing like a Dane had a habit with his tail. He used to switch his That's tail, right. didn't he? What did you say to me after the race? Because he, he was in the race with Octagonal. And Pat, I said, he's waving goodbye to his rivals, didn't <laughs> That's I? That's right, you did. <laughs> it was a wonderful line. And then you started him in the Melbourne Cup, and he came so close to winning that Melbourne Cup on a wet track a couple of days later. He certainly did. He was the most remarkable horse. And, and hang on, we've got a school group of schoolgirls going past. He really was. He was only a three-year-old, and there was a lot of talk about him, uh, you know, not running in the cup. And, of course, a great fracas between the owners and Dad who owned the horse. Mm. But Dad was right. You know, he should have been running in the cup. But in those days, of course, they had the weight, weight for age benefit, which they don't get nowadays. Yes. So this is a great shame that's happened. You know, people would start their three-year-olds in those days because they had a weight advantage, whereas they don't have it nowadays. And, of course, if you're the derby winner, you automatically had entry into the cup in those days. Mm. Yeah, and it hasn't been done since Skipton back in 1941, so he came so close to rewriting the record books. Um, we'll talk about the Cup and that famous Cup with Fiorenti a little bit later, Gay, but what's the race apart from the Cup that's been dearest to you? Has it been the Slipper? Has it been the Doncaster, which is generally regarded as Sydney's um, great race? Uh, because um, you've won both so many times. Well, I've won the Sipper six times, I think the Doncaster seven. But the Sipper's is the stallion-making race of Australia. Mm. There's no more important race that stamps Australia in the league of being a great country of breeding sprinters than the Slipper. 
Uh, and the horse that wins the slipper invariably ends up being a champion sire. Uh, and you only have to look at uh, the horses that are standing at stud in Australia, how many of them have been slipper winners, or at least raced in the slipper. Mm. And the Doncaster, as I said, it's a, it's a pure race, isn't it? It's that famous Randwick Mile. It's only won by great horses, and you've had so many great horses that have won that race. It must be a race that you hold in such high regard. Yeah, well, it is. I've got my husband with the radio on blaring. Um, uh, Peter, Rob, it turn is, the radio down, please. Yeah, I know. I just told him, Peter. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been ruined, Peter. Uh, all those handicaps have been ruined because they've made them quality handicaps. So when I ran Gifted Poet, he had 47 and a half, and the only way I could get a rider was to get the apprentice kid from Adelaide to come and ride the horse. Mm. Um, you know, and they were, then, you, you know, the horse that was coming up through the, through the weight could have a real chance, or it's like sprint by. But nowadays, there's a quality handicap, only the top-class horses. That's why I was so adamant that um, more joyous run in the, in the Doncaster, because, as I said to John Singleton, she'll be so well-weighted, so she'll be pitched into the race, as Winks would be if she was to run. You know, they're just thrown into the races now, those top-class horses. Now, I was going to ask so it you... It, it makes it not as interesting a, a race as the original yes. handicap was. Yeah, understand what you mean. I was going to ask you about John Singleton a bit later, but now that you've spoken about him, I'll ask you about him. There was... Better a, because I'm about to go to bed, so you don't have much time, Peter. Righto. All right. Well, let's get on with it. <laughs> and I'll ask you about that day in 2013, because uh, I was there that day, and, and if you look at all of the reports of that day, John Singleton sacked you live on air. Now, I know that that is possibly the case because I did the interview with him after the race and I my jaw nearly dropped when he said what he said. You've kissed and made up so much so that you've had a horse call kiss and make up but what happened that day, Gay? I don't know. I just it was, you know, it's past, past, past history now, Peter, but he certainly was a man with a mission and, uh, you know, listened to the wrong people and got his knickers in a twist over things which people can do and unfortunately it all happened on the racetrack and so it became a very public affair and, uh, and it was blown out of all proportion. And anyway, it's, it's passed and I'm thankfully training for John again and we have a very good relationship again. It's nice, you know. It's, and we did have a horse called Kiss and Makeup that <laughs> won the Todman and is now standing at Edmunds Park in Scone. Yes, yeah, that was uh, just a nice touch. Now, we're going to take a break and then we'll come back with our final segment because I know you've got to get to bed. Uh, so we'll take a break, Gay, eh? and we'll come back and we'll talk about that great day, that history-making day at Flemington when Fiorenti won the Melbourne Cup. Gay Waterhouse is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, serving families across Victoria for more than 80 years. Great to have your company for this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives, and we celebrate the life of Gay Waterhouse today. Gay, I made mention of the Cup. Um, and no doubt 2013 was one of your greatest moments, but one of your fine training performances was probably the year before with Fiorenti because you didn't have a lot of time with him leading into the Melbourne Cup of 2012. No, that's the year he ran second, isn't it, Peter? Yes. He literally came out of quarantine that day, which was Cup Day, and he went straight to Flemington and ran second. But when I saw him at the July meeting, uh, at Newmarket July meeting, uh, we'd been looking for a cup horse for about oh, a month or six weeks. We'd been to France and looked at lots of horses there. And we'd been in, uh, in and out of the English stables. And I said to Rob, when I saw him, I said, that's our cup horse. As soon as I saw him, there was just something about him. He was a very handsome horse. Yes, wasn't he? Yeah. 
very handsome horse, and he carried himself with such distinction. Uh, and um, he was light on his feet, and I just thought there's something sexy about you. There's something a bit special about you. Yeah. <laughs> and that was for Inte. Sexy is actually and- a very good word about that horse because he had that presence about him. He was just a lovely, athletic individual. Very much so, and and uh, very nice horse to train. Lovely disposition. A very good-natured horse for an entire. And, you know, they're in quarantine out at Werribee. They don't get a lot of exercise there. Um, and then, you know, we used to go down and we'd have these lovely breakfasts, some of the owners and, and, and I would go down there and drive down. We'd have our breakfast together. Then we'd go out and we'd look at the horse training and then we'd drive back. It was really nice. It was a lovely experience. You know, it was a very pleasant time. And then, of course, the next year he'd come in and he was in training for quite some time and uh, it was just fantastic. You know, it, was a, it was a dream come true. So he runs second in the 2012 Melbourne Cup. The 2013 Melbourne Cup must have seemed like more than 12 months away because you must have known that you had the horse that could win you a Melbourne Cup. How difficult was it for you to get through those 12 months? It must have seemed more like about two years because it, the planning would have started the minute that you ran second in the 2012 Cup, I guess. Well, it does. That's exactly. You have to think a year ahead. You have to plan these days. They can't be afterthoughts if you're trying to win a race like the Melbourne Cup. It's a, it's a long process, and it's something that you build towards. And you've got to have the horse in the first place. Uh, and we did have the horse, and uh, we just, you know, I used his versatility, though. You know, mm. he was able to win over 14. He raced over 16. You know, he was a very versatile horse, you know, and he had a wonderful turn of foot, which, of course, is a thing that won him the Cup. Yeah, he won the fee and stakes over 1,600 metres, and uh, the Cup's changed, Gay, hasn't it? Because when you go back uh, 30, 40 years ago, it used to be won by the Dow Stayers, but you need that horse who's got that burst of acceleration now because the Cup has become such a hotly contested international race that it needs to be more than just a horse that can plod for two miles. Well, Aidan O'Brien bought some of the best stayers in the world to Flemington mm. and couldn't win the Cup, and the reason Aidan realised and... and, and Coolmore realised is that they, they needed a horse that probably wasn't quite as star and quite as uh, long distance. You're probably better with a 10 furlong horse, a 2,000 metre horse, uh, because you know the cup is more of a sit and sprint in Australia. You know that's the way it's raced. It's not raced like they do in Japan or parts of England. You know where they might have a real old heavy slog. It's run at quite a quick tempo. I think it surprises the English horses mm. how fast it is run. I'll never forget the sight. Remember Double Trigger when he came out here? He'd won the Ascot Gold Cup, I think, a couple of times. And he was a hot favourite for the Melbourne Cup in the year that he ran in it. And I'll never forget the sight of him coming past the grandstand the first time. And he was in about 18th spot. And Jason Weaver was riding him. And he was riding the ears off him to keep him in 18th spot. He just couldn't stay in touch. No, they can't. They can't. And that's the beauty of the, the New Zealand bred horse and the, the horse that you can get from England that's got that, you know, that's not quite as dour because they really can be very effective. It's interesting that the, the New Zealanders have sort of come back into their own in the last two years, haven't they, mm. with being able to produce cup winners. Yeah. So anyone who knows you, Gay, knows that part of your DNA, part of your makeup, is your confidence about your horses. You arrive at Flemington on the first Tuesday in November of 2013. You've had the preparation that you wanted with Fiorenti. How confident were you that that was going to be one of your great days? Well, I was very nervous, and I to the point where I didn't really want to go to the Cup 
And I said to Rob, I don't want to go to the cup. You know, I said, uh, I just couldn't bear to let the every person down. You know, I, I, I just couldn't stand it. You know, I just would be so, so disappointed. And he said, he said, stop going on. He said, get dressed and go out and win the cup. That's exactly what he said, and he was so right. I can remember the outfit you had on that day, and and your outfits are uh, such a part of you when you go to the races. Was that a a particular outfit that had been supplied to you by someone, and you put some special effort into that, or is it just the way the cards fell that that was what you wore on Cup Day of 2013? Because you probably knew that it was going to be one of the most photographed outfits that you'd ever worn. I put a lot of thought into all the clothes I wear. I enjoy dressing up. I suppose it's the actress in me. I like going to the mm. when I go to the races. I like to dress up, um, and I had the, the outfit made by Alex Perry, and uh, you know I wanted to bring a jacket because it can be quite cool. You know, the weather can sometimes change, uh, and. Uh, uh, I'd been loaned the pearls that I wore bought from Pass Bailey, which were lovely things. They nearly weighed me down. They were so magnificent. And, you know, and I had the little hat. And I'm always very aware not to wear too big a hat because if one can blow away and two, it sh- shades your face. So when the photographers are trying mm. to take a photograph, you know, all the things that you do put at the back of your mind when you're getting your outfit together. Well, your outfit was perfect. His run in the race was perfect. He, he was presented at the right time by Ollie. It was just one of those days that everything fell into place. And was it a bit surreal when he hit the front gate and all of a sudden you realised that the race that every Australian knows about was going to be yours? Mm, well, it was. And as you said, Ollie rode him a great race. Damien rode him a masterful race. And he pulled him out so he had a bit of daylight and... and you know, at the top of the street, I, I called out to the owners and I said, well, I think we've got it. You know, I think we've got this cup. Uh, but of course, you don't have it till you get over the line. And of course, you don't have it until they put up weight, you know, declare weight. But uh, it was very exciting. And people around me that had had horses with me a long time, like Jack Bongiorno, who's been so, and Ross Heron, who'd been so supportive to the stables over the years. You know, it was just such a, a fab, you know, it was, it was just so exciting. And, you know, all my boys and girls that I work with, Ron Elliott, all the boys and girls, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the kids from Sydney, you know, were there helping, you know, as well as our Melbourne team. It was just uh, just a fabulous, fabulous day. And, of course, Tom and Huda were there and Kate and Luke and, and Rob. And it was, you know, it was just a lovely day. It's something that you dream about. But there were so many people in the horse. I think my best friend, Leah Stracy, and her husband, Bruce. And, of course, I wanted everyone to get on the podium. Mm. But, of course, halfway through getting them on, the podium started to get the, uh, to, to sort of go in the middle. And i never forget uh, Michael Burns' uh, wife, Fiona, said, you can't have any more, it'll bust, it'll bust. <laughs> I said, Fiona, don't be ridiculous. I said, that's what it's all about, Australians owning this wonderful race, you know, this wonderful horse. I said, that's what it's all about. We're able to have these syndicates and these groups that can own a horse. Yeah, it was standing room only on the podium, I remember that. Uh, uh, Ten minutes or so before you got on the podium comes the crush in the mounting yard when I'm waiting down there for you to talk to you and we've spoken many times after the races but that was the race where I really wanted to talk to you afterwards but nothing really prepares you for the crush in the mounting yard after a Melbourne Cup it's just it's chaos that's the only way to describe it well it's now a lot more cordoned off than it used to be when I won the derby with nothing like a Dane Peter which you 
remember. Mm. Um, I, I, I was mobbed, and I said to mum and dad after, I said, I now know how movie stars feel, you know, because that's what it felt like. You know, that people were grabbing us and pushing us, and well, that's all now been cordoned off. So, but it was, it's that excitement, you know, when I won the Metropolitan uh, for the first time, I looked into the stand to this. You know, stand everyone sitting there and looking at me. You know, my little green velvet dress, and I thought this is what I dreamed about when I was on the stage. You know, that I would have one stage an adoring audience, but here I have the adoring audience in my stage, which is racing. Yeah. You know, it was so funny just how certain things go through your head. Yeah, well, I was certainly adoring that day, and uh, when I spoke to you after the race, I remember saying to you you must be very proud that you've been able to do what your dad did. And your answer was, well, I'll have to do it another time because, of course, dad won too. So even then you were thinking of matching dad. Well, you know, dad was was the first person always to say, you know, you can't sit on your laurels. You've always got to strive for the next. You know, if you've won this year's Golden Simple, you've won this year's Cup, you know, what about next? Uh, and, and it's very true. Well, Ferrande didn't go on to the next year. Of course, he was retired to start in stands at Sun Bloodstock in Victoria, where he, I think he'd be very well placed. Yeah, and uh, after that Melbourne Cup and after the glory of that Melbourne Cup came an Australian Cup victory, which was another incredible training performance by you to, to produce him for that great race first up and, and such a dominant win. You must have been really chuffed with that as well. Yes, I was. I was. I love those sort of 2,000 metre, 10 furlong races. Uh, I, I think it epitomises everything. And you've got to be also mindful of all, everything you want in a racehorse. So they need speed, they need a little bit of endurance. Uh, and that's the wonderful thing about a race like the Australian Cup or the Cox Plate. Uh, and 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 the and the other thing is that uh, you know when you're mindful of them being stallions, you've got to say what do people find appealing? You know when they look at what he's won, well they find appealing that he won over a mile, that he won over ten furlongs. Uh, you know they don't find it as appealing that he won over two miles. It's quite ridiculous, but that's just the way it is. Did you pay heed to the fact that everyone? Well, everyone calls you the first lady of racing. Did you pay heed to the fact that you had done something for? your gender and something that Michelle Payne would do a couple of years later on with her incredible performance or from your point of view you're just a trainer regardless of whether you're male or female is that the way you look at well, it a, I look at I'm a trainer and, and you know I don't uh, I, I always have a giggle when people say you know the leading female trainer and I say well they don't say of David Hayes the leading male trainer I mean they know he's a man they know I'm a woman uh, so I think it's sometimes a little bit unnecessary to state those things. But uh, there weren't many women that have had cup runners, uh, and the first lady was an Australian. I can't think of her name, but she had to put in her husband's name because they weren't allowed to yes. train the horses. Mm. And then the second, of course, was Sheila Laxon, yeah. a, a lady from New Zealand, and then I've been the third. So there haven't been many of us. And then Michelle's deeds a couple of years later, that was a, another remarkable day in racing, wasn't it? Very much so. Well, the most exciting thing with Michelle is that she was young and she was, you know, uh, I suppose in a, a stage of her life where she was going to decide which way she'd go. And, of course, she's now chosen to be a trainer and she has to, you know, wear the other hat. Uh, but it was, you know, it was lovely. And it was lovely because just the way things panned out, you know, he was owned once again by a lot of people and, you know, and, and Darren Weir who prepared the horse and, you know, it was a real Aussie story. It was, it was, you know, it was very exciting. That's the lovely thing about the cup. It's very much, you know, even though it's won many times by internationals, 
It's also a great Australian story, isn't it? Oh, there's nothing like it, and that's what we say about the race, that when you talk to people from overseas, as you have many times about the great race, and you tell them that the whole nation stops and that there are holidays. Yeah, they can't believe it because there is nothing like it and that's why we should be very proud of it. Many people say to me that when they drive into Melbourne, the wonderful thing they see are all these banners flying and right from the moment they pick up the paper and you're over that, uh, leading up to that cup week, we can sometimes get over 20 pages just on on mainly on sport but mainly on racing. Well, that happens nowhere in the world, absolutely nowhere. No, you're exactly right. Gay Waterhouse is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Gay Waterhouse is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Gay, you're in a training partnership now with Adrian Bott. Are you in a transition phase in your life? Uh, Do you think you'll ever slow down? Are you capable of slowing down? I'm not sure. I'm certainly working as hard now as I ever worked. I want this to work for Adrian. It will work because he's a very special person. He's a very intelligent person. He's got a very um, good um, and apt mind to take on what I do. Uh, he asks many questions and he, he thinks about what, what I say, whereas no one else has done that. They all want to go off and do it their own way and they don't know. So he's, he's quite remarkable. You know, he he's, uh, also gives you an, a young view on things. And, and uh, he, you know, he, I think he's excellent. I love working with him. It's given me a real lease of life. So what does the partnership mean that you can do now that you possibly didn't have time to do before? Is there an area now where you can devote a little bit more time to it? Well, I can concentrate on the horses and selling the horses. Mm. I don't have to be thinking about the business even though I still do, you know, but not, not the same way because it's not my business anymore. I sold the business. You know, one or two of the boys or girls are getting on my nerves. I don't have to... I can walk away from that, which I didn't before, mm. and I can just go back to the horses. And, and I'm really enjoying... I'm having a ball, to be exact. I'm really having a ball. And it sounds as though you're having a ball in all aspects of life because when I've spoken to you over the years and we've had the opportunity of sitting down and talking, whenever you talk about Kate and... Tom and now the grandkids, there's a certain sparkle that comes into your eye. You're, you're very proud of them, aren't you? Yes, I am. And, I, you know, Kate was just up here just before you rang and we're having a bit of a chin wag and it was, it was really nice. And we live very close and Hoda and Tom live just up the road. I, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm surrounded by my loved ones. And it's a nice switch off. It's also a different stage of your life where you can look at things differently than you did maybe 20 years ago. Uh, you know, um, I suppose I was trying, always you're trying to prove something because, you know, that people will say, oh, she can't train two-year-olds or she can't train stayers or she can't train, uh, uh, you know, sprinters or fillies or whatever they can think about. Like I, I always get a, a little sort of giggle out of it because I think, well, I'll just show them how well we do do it, you know. I said to you, Gay, before we started this interview that you've been on the top of my hit list to be on this program for a long time. You are, without question, one of the the best and most favourite people that I have dealt with in my career in sport, and I feel very lucky to know you and to be able to to walk up and give you a kiss and say hello and chase you around the mountain yard, and I hope I get to do it again. I hope so too, Peter. Thank you for your time, and thanks. I hope your listeners enjoy it. Thank you, Gay. Gay Waterhouse has been my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives, and we'll have another very special guest same time next week on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Get the power.
Visit tyrepower.com.au now.